Hello, this is Pastor Don from the Atlantic Evangelical Free Church. I want to thank you for listening to our sermon podcast. If you'd like to find out more about our church, you can check us out on the web at AtlanticFreeChurch.com. In the meantime, I hope the sermon you're about to hear draws you closer to the Lord Jesus. Thanks for listening, and God bless you. As you're seated, if you can open up your Bibles to Zephaniah, and Larry will be sharing the reading today. Zephaniah 3. 14 through 20. That's Zephaniah 3, 14 through 20. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel... The Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of whom you mourn for the festival, so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time, I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in at the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. 14 through 20. Well, good morning. Great to be together this morning. I'm going to pray in just a moment. Before I do, just for, I wanted to remind folks to keep praying for your friends. You might remember back in the late spring, early summer, I, I preached a, a sermon where we talked about uh, bringing a friend to Jesus and it's kind of a, an encouragement to, to have. Actually, we passed out. I didn't bring my with me this morning, but we passed out a card that, where we invited you to list some people, maybe relatives, neighbors, friends, colleagues at work, whoever it might be, uh, who um, need Jesus. Yeah, maybe they just, they just don't know him yet. And uh, we just have all together hopefully been praying for those people. That Will Graham uh, celebration event, that outreach event, is just five weeks away. It's the very beginning of October. And uh, you'll be hearing more about that. Our evangelism and outreach team has been kind of getting some training and gathering materials. And uh, yeah, we're going to be hearing more about that. But the most important thing is that we be praying. So keep on praying for those people. You're going to hear this morning as we finish Zephaniah that we uh, worship a pretty awesome God. And we don't want to keep him to ourselves. We want to be able to share him uh, with the people in our lives. So keep praying for those friends. Uh, let's pray and uh, ask God's help with this passage as we get into it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for uh, bringing us here this morning. What a joy it is to be your gathered people. Uh, we would uh, ask you this morning to be working in our own hearts, Lord. Uh, sometimes we don't share our faith because we don't appreciate what a good thing we have. And 
This is one of those passages that sure does remind us what a good thing we have in Christ. And so uh, we would pray that you would strengthen our affections, Lord. Uh, Give us an even greater understanding of who Jesus is and what he has done for us and who you are, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, uh, for all that you've, you've done for us. Just glimpses even is all we can get this morning in this great passage. Uh, and I would just pray that you'd use, uh, use me, Lord. Um, I am uh, not up to the task by uh, virtue of my own failures and weaknesses, but would you use me anyway for your people's sake? Uh, this we all ask together in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Well, this is the last Sunday of August, and that means summer is almost over. And for some people, that's really hard. Some people have a very difficult time saying goodbye to summer. I think a lot of people actually feel that way. And so to cheer you up, to help you with that a little bit this morning, let me ask you a question. What are you looking forward to about the fall? What are you looking forward to? Yeah, it's hard to say goodbye to summer, but is there anything about the future, about the autumn that you're looking forward to. Maybe it's harvest. You know, I mean, I know it's a lot of work, but maybe there's just that sense of, yeah, let's get that that harvest in. Or maybe it's football season or hunting season, or maybe it's the cooler weather and lower humidity. Some some of us just don't like that, that humidity. And so maybe you're looking forward to that. Maybe you're looking forward to the fall colors. I noticed this morning some of the trees in the church parking lot are already starting to go. And it's like, oh, already, oh no. But, but it's so beautiful, right? So maybe you're, you're looking forward to that or fresh apples, hay rides. Maybe you're a pumpkin latte kind of person. I don't know, I'm not, but maybe you are. There's actually a lot of things, aren't there, to, to look forward to in the fall. Well, there's a principle at work there. If you think about it, there's kind of a, a psychological principle, if I can call it that. And, and the principle is that sometimes it helps to deal with something hard uh, by focusing on something good that's going to come, kind of that idea of anticipation, something good in the future. And we actually see this principle in the Bible a lot. You know, it kind of maybe helps say goodbye to summer by looking ahead to the autumn, but, but we actually see this principle a lot in Scripture where God invites us to look forward with anticipation at His promises, the things that He says are going to come. And that's a big principle in the passage as we end here in, in Zephaniah. We've been working through Zephaniah this month. We spent four weeks, including today, in this little uh, Old Testament prophet. And we're going to finish it this morning. We're going to finish Zephaniah. And each week is kind of the, the theme through this series. We've been asking a question. It's the same question every week. And the question is, how do we live when we live in times like these? The world is, is filled with evil and immorality and chaos and a lot of that stuff. And that was true in Zephaniah's day. We spent a lot of time, especially in chapter 1, looking at that, but chapter 2 as well. There's a lot of bad things in Zephaniah's day and there's a lot of bad things today. Uh, there's war and oppression and immorality and all, all that sort of thing. And, and then there's persecution. Christians are persecuted to varying degrees all around the world. And so how do you live, right? What's a believer to do? There's lots of good things to be sure, not trying to be needlessly negative. There's lots of good things to enjoy in the world. But, but when you look at the bad, when you look at how hard things are sometimes, how do you live when you live in times like these? And so we've been asking this book that question. I think it's a big question in the book. And the answer we see here at the end of Zephaniah is that we should rejoice. We should rejoice in the promises of God. This is what you get in verse 14. It's, a, it's the command that brings us in down to the home stretch here. Uh, verse 14 says, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart. 
O daughter of Jerusalem. That's what a believer should do. When we live in times like these, we should rejoice in the promises of the Lord. That's what we're supposed to do. So we're going to work through the last six verses this morning. We've taken some big chunks in this book. Now we're taking a smaller one, uh, just six verses. And as we look at these last six verses, I want to show you three types of promises, three types of promises that the Lord commands us to rejoice in. That's our main focus. But as we go along, in order to show you these, pr- these promises, I need to talk about a biblical principle, and it's the principle of uh, prophetic telescoping, uh, or sometimes people will talk about this as multiple fulfillments of prophecy. So we're going to talk a little bit about how to read prophetic books this morning. And uh, it's a principle that runs in a lot of books in the Bible, but especially you see it here in Zephaniah, and it kind of runs through the whole book, but it's especially here at the end. And, and the basic idea, I'll say a little more in a moment or two, but the basic idea is that some of God's prophecies, he doesn't fulfill them all at once, but rather he fulfills them in stages. And so I'm going to use that principle this morning, that idea of multiple fulfillments of prophecy, to talk about three types of promises, because they're, they're tied together. The stages of fulfillment are tied together to the types of promises that verse 14 tells us to rejoice in when God tells us to rejoice. So that's what we're going to look at this morning, these three types of promises. So let's, uh, let's look at the text. Open up your Bible or Bible app or however you like to look at it, and uh, let's look at them. Number one, the first type of promise that we see here in this passage are the promises that the Lord has already kept. We should rejoice in those. Rejoice in the promises the Lord has already kept. Now, before we look at the verses, before we get to verses 14 and 15, let me say a little more about prophetic telescoping. I mentioned this a minute ago. Let me explain it. The basic idea is that some prophecies in the Bible, so you think there's lots of prophecies, book of Revelation, lots in Ezekiel, lots, lots of those minor prophets, stuff in the Gospels, lots of prophecy in the Bible. Uh, some of those prophecies are fulfilled in stages. Not all of them. I don't want you to, to think all of the biblical prophecies are, are staged this way. Um, I can give you plenty of examples where there's just one fulfillment. So one good example is the one from Micah. I think it's Micah 5.8 that says uh, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Remember that one? You, Bethlehem, Ephrata, you, you, the, the Messiah will be born in you, just to shorten the verse. Uh, and that was only fulfilled once. There was no kind of pre-fulfillment, and, but it was fulfilled when Jesus, the Son of God, was born in, in Bethlehem. Others, though, have these, these stages. And, and a good way to think about this is to think in terms of mountains, right? So you can think about mountains. I'm going to put a few pictures up here to help us uh, think about this. Uh, if you were, let's say you were driving from Iowa to Colorado, right? Those big mount, Rocky Mountain mountain ranges. Uh, as you were driving westward uh, and you saw the mountains in the distance, it would look kind of like that picture on the left-hand side of what you're looking at there. And so you'd see all these mountains and it would look like they were together because you were looking at them from a great distance. But then when you got there, when you reached the first one, you kind of climbed up or drove up it, hopefully, uh, you'd kind of get to the top and you'd look and you'd say, oh, there's a bunch more mountains. And, and maybe you'd, you'd see a big valley in between. A lot of times you do. In fact, I've read historical accounts that was, this was actually what happened to the early pioneers. They saw the mountains. They said, great, we'll get to the top of the mountains. We'll be there. And they got to the top of the mountains and all they saw was a valley and more mountains <laughs> off in the distance. And you go down the valley up the mountain, you get to the top and there's more mountains. And, and, and you can have this sort of, and so you'd, it would be more like what you see on the right-hand side there 
of, of the picture where there's these valleys in between the mountains that looks like they were all on top of each other when you looked at them from a distance. And that's what happens sometimes with, with biblical prophecies. From the prophet's point of view, uh, he, he's looking at it head on. And the Lord says how the Lord reveals it to him. The Holy Spirit kind of, however, the, you know, these visions and however he gives it, gives it to him, them. And so to them, it looks like a single event. That's what they're seeing. And so they write it down that way because that's how God is showing it to them. But then as time passes and we look at it from the side, as it were, if you kind of imagine time unfolding and being on a timeline, uh, you, you see that actually, no, it wasn't all at once. It was something he was going to do in parts. And so we sometimes we'll talk about near fulfillments of prophecy and far fulfillments of prophecy. If any of this sounds familiar, uh, it's because we talked about this about a year and three months ago when we went through uh, Matthew chapter 24 and 25 in our series through Matthew. I needed to talk about the same thing. In fact, I think I even used some of the same slides. I went back and got some of those same pictures out from then. Uh, Because you see this principle in Matthew. In Matthew chapter 24, 25, Jesus preaches a sermon we call the Olivet Discourse. And some of the things Jesus talks about in that sermon happened pretty soon. Some of them happened by 70 AD, less than 40 years later they were done. But others of them are still off in the distance. They haven't even happened yet. Those are the ones that happen at the very end of the age. And so we talked about this principle about a year ago, if it sounds familiar. And what I want to tell you this morning is, I think that's what's going on here in Zephaniah. There are multiple mountain peaks of fulfillment in even just in the six verses we're going to look at this morning as the book kind of culminates and comes to an end. In fact, I'd like to suggest to you, and I am suggesting you this morning, there are three, not just two like you see in in Matthew uh, with Jesus' Olivet Discourse, but actually there are three here, three uh, peaks of fulfillment that we're going to look at this morning. So with that in mind, I'll actually come back to this and fill in some, some blank spaces there as we go along. So with that in mind, now let's go back to the, prophets, the promises that are done already. Some of the prophecies in the Bible are promises that God made in, in time in the past, and he's already fulfilled them. They've already happened. And I actually think verses 14 and 15 are like that. They were forward for Zephaniah, but they're past for you and me. And so verse 14, I'll start with that one again. It says, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Why? The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He's cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. So verse 14 commands us to rejoice uh, and if you're a follower of the Lord, if you're one of his, his remnant, that remnant we talked about at the beginning of chapter 3, if you're one of his faithful followers, rejoice, he says. And that applies, that applies to you know, the Jews, the faithful Jews like Zephaniah, who were faithful to the Lord when everyone else around them wasn't. It applied to them in their day. It applies to us today because God, God never changes. And so if you're a faithful follower of the Lord today, you trust in Jesus Christ and you're not letting the world shape you and you repent when you do, then you are part of that remnant and that command applies to you. Rejoice, rejoice in this promise. Verse 15 then gives the explanation, or the first explanation for why this command comes. And what you have in verse 15 is basically the promise of the restoration of Israel. It's the promise of the restoration of the Israelites, the Jews, from exile. So I think that's what's going on here. Especially verse 15 is describing the return from the Babylonian exile. And so I can put my chart back up here and I can tell you peak number one 
is about 100 years after Zephaniah. It's, it's the return from exile in Babylon. Babylon. So if you've been here all month or you've caught these sermons, uh, you, you might remember I said that Zephaniah was written approximately 630 B.C., before Jesus, before Christ, 630 B.C. Uh, Zephaniah gives this prophecy. He writes it down. Uh, about 30 years later, Israel doesn't do what they were told to do in chapter 1. Only the remnant does, but the nation doesn't. And so God judges them. He sends them to exile in Babylon. They're carried off almost 1,000 miles away and live, forced to live for 70 years in this foreign country. But then the Lord brings them back. And that's what's being described uh, there in verse 15. Uh, God did these things. Verse 15, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. That's, that's the, 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 the time served, if you will, is over. And now he's removed the judgment against his people and he brings them back. And so God, uh, he actually, it's the next one. Um, I've cleared away, he will, and it's, it's, it's future as Zephaniah writes it, but it's kind of a prophetic present where it's talked about as if it's already happened. That's how sure it is. Uh, and so the Lord has cleared away your enemies. He's, he has cleared away your enemies. That's exactly what he did to the Babylonians. The Babylonians were defeated. They were so powerful when they, when they destroyed Jerusalem. Less than 50 years after at that point, uh, these, this other group, the Persians, the Medes, uh, come in and destroy them. And so he cleared away the Babylonians. That is what opened the door for the Jews to go back to Jerusalem. Uh, and then the king of Israel is in your midst. The king, the Lord, is in your midst. They rebuilt the, tomb, the temple. When they went back to Jerusalem, they rebuilt the temple. And the Lord, the, the temple represented God's presence with his people. And so that's verse 15. Uh, the king of Israel is restored. He's, he's, he's on his throne again in the temple. He's there with his people. He's in their midst. And so verse 15 is that first fulfillment, the return from exile. Now, you and I look at that, and we might be tempted to say, who cares? So what? You know, why does it matter to you and me today that 2,500 years ago, the Lord kept a promise to Israel? He restored them from exile. Why, why should that be a source of joy for us? Well, the answer is that it reminds you and me that our God can be trusted. He can be trusted. Your God, the God you came here to worship today, is a promise-keeping God. If he says he's going to do something, he's going to do it. You can count on it because that's what he's done all along. That's what so many of all of those already fulfilled promises tell us. They tell us he can be trusted. Now, he may not do it exactly the way you want him to do it. He doesn't tend to take advice from us. I don't know if you've found that. I've certainly found that to be true. He doesn't, uh, you know, accommodate our advice. He doesn't follow our schedule. But if he said he's going to do it in his word, he will do it. And that's what the, the already kept promises remind us of. And I would encourage you to even just think about this in terms of your own experience of God. I mean, what has the Lord already done? Things from Scripture that he's already done for you in the past. These should be sources of joy and celebration. And I'll even just use the categories from verse 15. I mean, yeah, verse 15 is for Israel specifically in history, but he's done these things in your history too. He's done these sorts of things in your history. Uh, if, you've trusted in Jesus as Lord, uh, if you've trusted in Jesus, then he has taken away the judgments. Right? Same language. He's, he's taken away the judgments from you. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those 
who are in Christ Jesus. The Lord has taken away the judgments, just like it says there in verse, verse 15. He's cleared away your enemies. He's cleared them away. The devil has no rightful, your greatest enemy of all, the devil has no rightful place in your life. Before he did, before you gave your life over to Christ, before he saved you, the devil did have a, a foothold, but he doesn't now. That enemy's been cleared away by Jesus. And the Lord is with you. More on that in a minute, but if you believe in Jesus, then the King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. He's, he's with you, just like this verse 15 says. That already kept promise applies to you. Or think about this principle of restoration. Think in terms of that, and again, your own experience of the Lord's grace in your life. Uh, you know, yes, he restored the Israelites from exile. Yes, the faithful remnant, those who had to be judged were judged, but the remnant were restored. Well, what has he restored for you? What has the Lord restored in your life? Some of you, he restored your marriage. You went to a really rough spot, and you didn't think you were going to make it, and then he brought you through. He restored your marriage. Or maybe he restored your, your, a broken relationship, maybe with your parents or a sibling, or maybe with one of your children. Uh, maybe he restored your reputation from something you'd done. And maybe he restored your health. Maybe he healed you of something. Maybe he, he restored your joy. You went through a season of, of deep grief, profound grief, and you didn't imagine you'd ever be able to even smile again, let alone laugh. And, and yet the Lord brought healing there and, 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 and comfort, and, and now he's restored your joy. What has he restored for you? Well, the point is, uh, is that that's what he does. That's what he does. He keeps his promises. Now, we do run into a little bit of a problem at this point, and you're aware of it, just like I am. And the problem is that these verses make some pretty big promises, and, it, and, and we know from experience that he hasn't done these things to the full. He hasn't done these things to the full. I mean, verse 15, what does it say? It says, you shall never again fear evil. You shall never again. I've cleared away your enemies. I've cleared them away. It didn't work out that way even for the Jews. Even for the Jews, it didn't. If, if you read the book of Nehemiah, for example, which takes place uh, after this, this fulfillment that I'm talking about today, uh, the whole point of Nehemiah is that there were still enemies. The Lord had cleared away the Babylonians, but there were still plenty of enemies who were coming against the Israelites. In fact, they had a lot of fear. One of the things, one of the problems they face in the book of Nehemiah that Nehemiah has to help them overcome is their fear. And so they were still dealing with fear. They were still dealing with enemies. And, and again, we, we connect with that because we, we look at all these wonderful things God has done for us, and yes, he's done many, many wonderful things for us, and yet we are also aware that there's more to come, that he hasn't done all of the things that he'd say he would do for us. And that's even going to be true here in this passage. There are things we read here in Zephaniah at the end that that, that would be true of. And, and that's where these other two mountaintops are going to help us, especially the third one, but the second one as well, as we think about it from Israel's perspective. So, so let's look at the second mountaintop now. The second type of promise uh, that we, we see in this passage are the promises that you and I enjoy now in Jesus. Rejoice in those two. Rejoice in the promises that... New Testament saints, that those of us who, who have the blessing of living as new covenant people, that we enjoy now, already, in the present, in and through our Savior, Jesus Christ. And I think that's what verses 16 and 17 are getting us into. These are prophecies about Jesus, or is a prophecy about Jesus. So, uh, in your Bible, verse 16, on that day, the day when the Lord acts, 
it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Now, on one level, Zephaniah is still talking to the Israelites. I mean, you see it there, right? He talks to Jerusalem. He says, fear not, O Zion, which is another name for the holy city, for Jerusalem. And so on one level, verses 16 and 17 are very much addressing the, the remnant coming back to the Holy Land. But he's also, and, and, he's, and it's a promise of restoration. That's the language that's using there, right? It's all that language of restoration. Don't be afraid. God is with you. I'll be in the temple. I'll be there with you. Um, and, and so it's this description for them. However, uh, he restores more than just them from exile, right? It, God restores more than just them. And so I think what Zephaniah, I would submit to you, what Zephaniah is seeing here is he's seeing the incarnation. This is where you, start, you get these fuller fulfillments of this prophecy. He's seeing Jesus. And so the, the second prophetic peak uh, here in Zephaniah chapter 3 uh, is Jesus. It's the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 17. I think verse 17 is the one where we see it so clearly. Uh, he, he says, The Lord your God, the Lord your God is in your midst. Uh, those, those right there may be some of the most beautiful words in this book, maybe even in the whole Old Testament. God is with you. The Lord your God is in your midst. Uh, for the ancient Jews, it was a glorious promise that God hadn't forsaken them. Right? So I, when I tell you that this second peak is about Jesus, I don't want you to think it meant nothing to them. Uh, a, a, the, the, the remnant who came back, this was a wondrous promise for them. God did not abandon us. Yes, we sinned grievously against him. We burned our children to Molech in the valley, in the, in the fire, and we, we committed all kinds of immorality and idol worship. And even so, God did not abandon us. He brought us back to the promised land after our time of exile. So it was a powerful promise for them. But then for you and me as Christians, we read that and we go, wow, that's Jesus. That's fully fulfilled in Jesus. And the New Testament authors are going to drive that home. Uh, you see it in Hebrews. It's how he, Hebrews begins. Long ago and at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, even Zephaniah. But in these last days, now he's spoken to us by his son. The Lord your God is, is with you. He's in your midst. John writes about it even more bluntly. John 1, 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Lord your God is in your midst. Or Matthew, Matthew talks about it as well. Uh, Matthew 1, he says all this took place. That's in the first chapter describing, uh, he, he records the, the conversation between Joseph and the angel in which the angel explains that Mary's carrying the Son of God. And then Matthew records all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, Isaiah 7, 14, which means God with us. The Lord your God is in your midst. That's what Zephaniah saw. That's what he saw in the far off distance. He didn't know it, but he was seeing the, the incarnation, the coming of the Messiah, Jesus, God with us, dwelling in the midst of his people. And we enjoy this now. You and I enjoy this promise now. We don't have to wait for this one. 
they actually had to wait for its, for its fuller fulfillment. Israel, in let's call it 500 BC, had 500 more years to wait before the Messiah came and dwelt among his people in person. But we enjoy this one now. And there are actually lots of benefits we could talk about. It's actually kind of what we do all the time around here, right? We talk about the benefits of the fact that God is with us. Uh, but there are three, even in these verses, that I th- I'd like to encourage you with this morning. Three benefits of the fact that Jesus uh, is, is with us now, that we enjoy his presence now. And uh, the first is in verse 16. It's that he gives us courage. He, he, incur- he gives us courage. He fills us with courage. Uh, verse 16, fear not, let not your hands grow weak picture is kind of the idea of hands lying limp at your side. Don't do that. Let them be raised in strength. And so it's a picture of of courage. Fear not. Jesus gives us courage to live in times like these. To go back to our question, how do you live when you live in times like these? Well, God is with us. That's how you live. You have courage because God is with us. And if God is with us, who can be against us? And so we have courage. Uh, The presence of Christ with us gives us courage. Uh, Second, Jesus saves us. He saves us. He's, what does it say? He's mighty to save. He's mighty to save. And, and that's good news. It's good news that he, our God is mighty to save. Uh, we sure can't save ourselves. Boy, if the, if the last two years have proven anything, they've proven that. We sure can't save ourselves. We can barely handle one little coronavirus, right? And I'm not trying to downplay it. I know it's a serious illness, but it's not Ebola, right? But, but look at what it's done to the whole world. And, and, and so we, we can't save ourselves. I, I, I pray that, that some at least will get that lesson from this experience we've all had to walk through together. We cannot save ourselves. But Jesus, Jesus is mighty to save. He saves us. He saves us uh, ultimately from, from our sin. That's the, most, the biggest saving of them all. Uh, and, and he gives us eternal life. So he's mighty to save. And then a third one we see, again, this rejoicing in the promise we enjoy now in Jesus. The third one in this text is, is his love. He loves us. Jesus loves that. And where you see, he loves us. And, and where you see that is in the, the triplet. I, I think they, the three uh, lines add on top of each other because it's kind of poetry in form. Uh, there in the last part of verse 17, uh, he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with singing. He will, and all three of those have to do with his love. He will exult over you with singing. Have you ever loved someone so much that, that it made you sing? Have you, ever, have you ever loved someone that way? Maybe you'd, you'd fallen in love and, and you just couldn't help it. You know, in that first flush and you, know, you just walk around and you're, you're singing love songs all the time. You're kind of singing them under your breath. You're at the grocery store and, you know, you're singing Ed Sheeran songs or Air Supply, depending on how old you are. And, and uh, you know, you're just, and people are looking at you like you're nuts, but you don't care, right? Because you're in love, right? It, love does this. Or maybe it was a new baby, Right? You, you, you have that, the Lord brings you a, a, gives you a baby, and, and you, know, you weren't much of a singer before. You weren't much of a singing person before, but now you hold this precious little bundle. And, and, and songs that you didn't even know were in here, they start coming out. Right? Big, strong men, you know, burly men, you know, manly men. You know, they're, they're like, hush, little baby, don't say a word. Daddy's going to buy you a mockingbird. I mean, where'd that come from? You didn't even know that was in there. But, the, but that's what love does. That's how it is when you love someone. Sometimes love, and it's, it's really powerful manifestation, sometimes it, it overflows into singing. And, and that's the idea of this little triplet, these, these three little words, these three lines. 
God loves you so much, Zephaniah says, that it makes him sing. He exults over you with loud singing. This is no quiet lullaby here. This is a rock concert of love. God loves you. And the wonderful thing about God's love, you see it in the middle one, is that it leads to peace. He will quiet. It's kind of jarring, right? It's a rock concert of love, but it, cause, it quiets your soul, right? Because it's God's love. And you think about the Yanks. How do I live in days? How do I live when I live in times like these? They're so anxious. They're so fearful. So many awful things are happening in the world. All I got to do is say the word Afghanistan, and you're all there with me. You all know the things that happened this week, and if you watch any news at all, I mean, you just look at all that, and you're like, oh my goodness, it's so awful. But God loves you. And, and nothing calms that anxiety and that fear like focusing on the infinite love of our, our Heavenly Father. And we enjoy that now. We, we don't have to wait on this one. God is already with us in the person of Jesus Christ. However, if you listened to uh, the whole passage when Larry it, read it for us before, if you've got it open in front of you now, you know we're not done yet. We haven't fulfilled everything that's in this passage. There are some promises in this text that still lie ahead, and that brings us to the third peak in this prophetic mountain range. And so the third type of promise we're going to talk about are the ones that are going to be fulfilled, that will be fulfilled yet in the future. So I can't give you a date on these ones. They're TBA. They're to be announced because they are in the future. But we're told here to rejoice in them. And so now we're into that anticipatory joy that I started us out with this morning. Uh, They haven't happened yet, not in their fullness, but we look forward to them with with gladness and and with joy. And that's what verses 18, 19, and 20 are, are focusing on the most. There are, the nature of prophecy is that, and especially this um, principle of multiple fulfillment, is that it's not always neat and cut and dry. And so there's like some spillover here. And so some of the things in 18 through 20 maybe have been fulfilled in those, in those earlier ones. But really the fullness of them, I think, of 18, 19, and 20 is what's lying ahead. So let me, let me read them again. God says, I will gather, I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame, and I will gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in at the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. The Lord makes four promises. Four promises there in the closing words. It's the closing words of Zephaniah. Uh, first, he promises, I will gather you. I will gather you. Um, verse 18 is actually talking about that gathering. I, I will tell you, verse 18 is uh, difficult to interpret. It's just, remember, the Bible's written in Hebrew, and, or the Old Testament's written in Hebrew, and some parts are easier to translate and interpret than others. There's kind of some um, archaic words, amb- ambiguous words that are used here. And so it's a little tricky to interpret, but the best interpretation, so that's kind of my job, right? I'll look at the interpretations. I looked at it this week. The best one I saw is that is this verse 18 is talking about the banquet we read about back in chapter one so i don't know how many remember this but back in chapter because i didn't have time to spend a lot of time on it but back in chapter one verses seven and eight god talks about a banquet and remember chapter one is very focused on judgment and god says i'm gonna i'm gonna throw a party i'm gonna throw a, a banquet and i've prepared the sacrifices and i've got everything ready for the banquet and i invite all my guests in and his guests are the wicked leaders of israel 
But then you find out in the verses that follow that this banquet isn't a banquet of celebration. This is a banquet of judgment. And so it gets kind of ugly. It becomes this, God brings them in and then he, he judges them. That's that banquet. And all of that was talking about how God was going to judge the Israelites, when he, the, the faithless in Jerusalem, when, in, in 586 BC, when the Babylonians destroyed the city of Jerusalem and burned down the temple. And so the banquet, so in verse 18, when it talks about a festival, that word festival is kind of, that's the ambiguous one. I think the way to understand that in the context of Zephaniah is that it's talking about the judgment. So, and, and, and the fact that they mourned, what does it say? They mourned over the festival. They mourned over the judgment. That's, the remnant weren't standing there going, yeah, right? They're not like, yeah, judge those people. No, they mourned over it. Just like we should mourn when we see God's judgments poured out on the, on the earth. And so verse 18 is a reference to, to God's judgment. But then, and, but what does it say? He says, I'm going to gather you. Those who mourned over the festival, those who mourned over the, the judgments of God, I'm going to gather you. I'm going to gather you back to myself. And so it's that return from exile. It's this whole, and you, if you look at that passage, you'll see he keeps repeating that word, gather. I'm going to gather you. In the Bible, they're not the only ones God gathers. Right? This idea of gathering. Uh, they may have been the first, but they weren't the last. Because what's going to happen when Jesus returns? He gathers. He's going to gather all of his people, all of his faithful people from across all the generations. He's going to gather them to himself. Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus and our being gathered together to him. That's the New Testament language for the, you and I understand this to be the rapture and the return of Jesus Christ concerning our being gathered to him. First Thessalonians uh, chapter 4, he describes in a little more detail. You know the words, many of you do anyway. Verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together. It's a synonym for gathered. We'll be gathered with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we'll be with the Lord always. Zephaniah did not see it as clearly as Paul saw it. That's the nature of progressive revelation. Zephaniah didn't see it as clearly as Paul did, but I think that's what Zephaniah was seeing. When the trumpet blows and Jesus comes back, he will gather all of his people to himself. Promise number one. Second promise here in the, in the closing words, I will liberate you. I will liberate you. I will set you free. That's the beginning of verse 19. Uh, Behold, at that time, I will deal with all of your oppressors. I will deal with all of your oppressors, the Lord says. Now, he's done this in stages. We've talked about that. He does it in stages through history. Uh, the Lord judges individual wicked nations down through times. Uh, but the, 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 the shortcoming of judging nations in history is that there's always another wicked nation ready to step up and fill the gap. And if you know anything about human history, that's how it goes. You take down one, here comes another one. That's, that's how how human history has unfolded. However, when we get to the end of all things and Jesus returns, that's the end of that. That's what verse 18 is talking about. There, there will be, or verse 19, there will be no more oppressors. That's when the ultimate fulfillment, and, and this language that we see here, the stuff we're still waiting for, never again will you fear evil. No longer will you suffer reproach. Once and for all, I will deal with the oppressors, the Lord says. He will liberate us. He will set us free from 
uh, from evil. He will set us free from evil. The third promise, uh, I will restore you. I will restore you. Uh, he restored the exiles, uh, the, the, the remnant, the, the remnant of Jews. He restored them from the exile. He restores us too because he's in the business of restoration. Uh, and you see pictures of this and they echo some of the things you read in Isaiah and things you read in, in the book of Revelation. Uh, I will save the lame and I will gather. There's that word again. I will gather the outcast. When Jesus returns, he will heal all our diseases. There won't be any more cancers or strokes or heart attacks or any of it. He'll heal it all. Uh, He'll wipe away all our tears, Revelation 20 uh, 20 and 22. He'll gather all of the the outcasts, all of his outcast people who've been rejected and scorned by the world. He'll gather us and he'll restore us to the fullness of what we were meant to be. That's, uh, That's the third promise. And again, think of these all in terms of how do I live when I live in times like this? Well, I look, I look forward with that glad anticipation of when he gathers us to himself, of when he sets us free from evil, of when he restores what this world and, and, and our own sin sometimes has broken. And then finally, here's where it all culminates in this book. Finally, I will exalt you. I think that's the promise. I will exalt you. Not in the sense that we'll be worshipped. God's not telling us we're going to be worshipped here. It's, I'm using the language here in the sense of vindication. You'll be vindicated. I guess I could have put that. I will vindicate you. And this last one is so important. God actually says it twice in verses 19 and 20. The first is in the form of a decree. The second is in the, in the, in the form of comfort. And so verse 19 is the decree. God says, I will change their shame. It switches to third person because it's like a legal proclamation. I will change their shame, my people's shame, into praise and renown in all the earth. And then he repeats it in verse 20. I will make you, now it becomes direct comfort, I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes. The shame in verse 19 uh, is not the shame we talked about, I think it was last week, but it might have been two weeks ago. Uh, It's not the shame of sin, which comes up earlier in the book. Uh, This is the shame of oppression. And so it's not the shame that comes from within because of sin, it's the shame that's foist upon us because of oppression and persecution. That's the context here. And so it's the, sh- it's the shame that the world has pushed on God's people. God's people are the targets of God's enemies all over the globe. We, we are. It's, it's worse in some places than others, but there is no place where Christians are spared the scorn and the shame that the world heaps upon us. Even, even in a supposedly Christian nation like our own, we are still often the objects of scorn and, and, and mockery and, and ridicule. And we have it good. But we, you know it. We have it good. Consider what brothers and sisters in places like Afghanistan or, or China or North Korea or so many other places in the world, consider what they're going through compared to what we go through. And the Lord promises he's going to end it all. He promises that, that this, the oppression, the scorn, the shame that is heaped upon Christians in this world is not the final word. When Christ returns, he will transform that shame into praise and renown. That's the offset here. It was scorn, shame, oppression from the world, but I'm going to transform it, God says, into renown and praise, praise and renown. He uses the same words, reverses the order uh, for emphasis. And notice where it's going to happen. It's not just a few places. It's all the earth. I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples 
of the earth. And so what you have there, the book ends with this picture of complete reversal. Right? Everything was upside down. God says, I'm going to come and I'm going to turn it all upside right. It's a complete reversal. And so how does the book end? I will restore your fortunes before your eyes. When Jesus comes back, God's enemies will be condemned to eternal judgment. And God's people, those who've remained faithful to him, his people will reign with him forever. That's how you live when you live in times like these. You cling to the promises of God, but you don't just cling to the promises of God, you rejoice in the promises of God. Uh, The ones he's already kept, the ones he's keeping now, and the ones he's yet going to keep in the future. I want to end with a a couple of sentences uh, from a, a, a Bible teacher, a guy named James Bruckner. He wrote a book, actually, on Zephaniah that's been helpful to me. And as he's kind of wrapping up the book, his summary of this chapter, but really the whole book, here's what he writes, and I'll end with this. He says, We are invited to join God and the rest of creation in rejoicing over our reconciliation with the Creator and Redeemer. Every Sunday, right here what you and I are doing, every Sunday is a reminder to rejoice in Christ's Easter victory over sin, death, and the evil one. The Lord your God is in your midst. God has in Christ secured our hope and our future. Even in the midst of hardship, we may enter into the rejoicing of hope. The fullness of joy is in our future, but it has already been fulfilled in Jesus, the firstborn of the new creation. In him, our future joy may be fulfilled and experienced in the present. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, we thank you for this right there, that our future joy uh, may be experienced even now in the present because of Jesus, because of what you've done for us in him. Thank you that the Lord our God is in our midst. That's not just a a statement about uh, the rebuilding of the temple. Uh, That was the first uh, fulfillment, but that was just you getting warmed up for what you were were going to do and from our vantage point on the timeline have already done in our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we pray, Lord, that you would use this little series and this sermon this morning to build up our faith, make us strong in Jesus at the core of our being so that we can keep holding on to these promises and keep our eyes on that day, uh, that day when you come and you make all things new. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.